Yeah, thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here. It's a great honor to address this group. And of course, it's a, it's a privilege and pleasure to be here in Oxford. Um, before I start with my topic, um, two disclaimers. So for me, it is a particular challenge to address a public international law discussion group. And this is simply because I'm not a public international lawyer, but I'm a criminal lawyer. Uh, I work a little bit uh, on international criminal law, so looking at the intersection, what I will also a little bit do today, of the two areas, public international law and criminal law. But anyway, forgive me uh, any occurrences with regard to international law today. Second disclaimer is my paper, what I present here today, is very much work in progress. It builds, uh, in some extent, um, on a larger research project which we are conducting in Hamburg. Currently, and that's one thing I plan to do here in Oxford, I'm in the process of editing a collection of papers which were presented at a conference last year in Hamburg uh, and which will be published by Cambridge University Press next year. So having said this, let me start with the following. The explicit claim that international prosecutions would contribute to the restoration and maintenance of peace marked the dawn of modern international criminal justice. Already in his opening speech at Nuremberg, Robert Jackson explained, I quote, this trial is part of a great effort to make peace more secure, end of quote. And in 1993, the Security Council was convinced, quote, that the establishment of the ICTY would contribute to the restoration and maintenance of peace, end of quote. Later on, in 2004, the Council commended the important work of the ICTY in contributing to lasting peace and security and national reconciliation. The ICTY itself noted that it would work as, quote, a tool for promoting reconciliation and restoring true peace. So as a claim, as an objective, as an aspiration, its true or purported effect on peacemaking shaped the development of international criminal law. At the same time, it seems obvious, at least at first sight, that objectives related to international peace and security are somewhat removed from the ordinary concerns of criminal justice. Isn't criminal justice, as delivered by criminal courts, confined to the establishment of individual responsibility and the determination of a punitive sanction proportionate to the degree of blameworthiness? Well, in any case, this creates the need for specific explanation and justification. As Rob Cryer has stre stressed, I quote, some of the most serious doubts that have been expressed about international criminal law relate to the claim that it promotes peace and reconciliation. These doubts, I should add, are reinforced by the fact that the enforcement of international criminal law is not any longer confined to prosecution and punishment in the aftermath of war and violence, the classical Nuremberg scenario. Rather, international prosecutions have been increasingly employed to intervene in ongoing conflicts. In this regard, again, the ICTY set the precedent its mandate to impose justice before peace and as a means to achieve peace had no precedent. Unlike Jackson stressed, it was not about making peace more secure, 
but to create peace in the first place. And apparently, the claim that international prosecutions could help to stop war create additional challenges. In my talk, which is rather a mapping exercise, I want to inquire a bit into the re relationship of peacemaking and criminal justice. I will do so from two different perspectives. An international law perspective, where I start from the International Criminal Court and its founding treaty, the Rome Statute, and ask, is the making of peace a function of the ICC? And a criminal law perspective, where I try to shed some light on the role the notion of peace plays in general criminal law and legal theory and ask, why do we punish, starting from the justifications traditionally given in the national context. In particular, the latter perspective has so far, with a few notable exceptions, been neglected in international criminal law scholarship, which, to the extent that it was interested in the rationals of punishment at all, has very much focused on consistency and proportionality of the specific sanctions. That is the how rather than the why of a punitive reaction to crime. Today I'm more interested in the why question. So let me begin the first part of my paper, and you have a handout, I, I hope, uh, most of you at least, um, where you can at least try to follow me a little bit better. Let me begin the first part of my paper with two preliminary remarks. My topic overlaps with a well-known debate about how to reconcile or sequence peace and justice, a debate which started in the 1990s and has lasted more than a decade. Positions extend from the idea of criminal justice as an indispensable ingredient of any process of national reconciliation and stable peace, no peace without justice, to a sharp dichotomy of peace and justice, peace versus justice, to a conception of criminal justice as a tool to achieve peace, peace through justice. One of the most recent examples for a strict peace versus justice approach relates to the envisaged withdrawal of South Africa from the Rome Statute. In this context, the South African government declared, I quote, under these circumstances, South Africa is of the view that to continue to be a party to the Rome Statute will compromise its efforts to promote peace and security on the African continent. End of quote. I shall not repeat the debate here, and I'm not convinced that the general peace-justice debate can really contribute to my topic. I am more interested in if, how, and where peace is integrated into the concept of international criminal justice rather than the relationship between the achievement of peace and the enforcement of justice. In any case, and by the way, if you want so, in my view, the debate has been impeded by, the con by conceptual ambiguity of both the notion of peace and the notion of justice. I would believe one's own position depends significantly on what kind of peace and what kind of justice is taken into consideration. A classical negative notion of peace, the absence of war and large-scale physical violence. An extended notion of peace which includes inter alia the absence of human rights violations. Or a progressive, positive notion of peace 
which may include social justice, the rule of law, and the absence of structural violence. A narrow notion of justice, which would be confined to the prosecution and punishment, or a more extensive notion of justice, which would include distributive justice. As I said, I will not deal with the peace justice conundrum here, but just to point to a few, in my view, uh, challenges which we see there. Allow me a second related preliminary remark. Is there empirical evidence in support of the popular assumption that the exemplary punishment of individuals um, of international crimes by international tribunals has positive effects or effects at all on the consolidation and making of international peace? According to a widespread belief, positive effects may include breaking the cycle of violence, victims need not to hand down justice in their own hands, a culture of impunity may inspire later crimes and so on, creating a narrative of the causes and dynamics of uh, the conflict, an international truth, acknowledging that crimes were committed and acknowledging victimhood, and marginalization, removal of perpetrators. All this, the argument goes, results from reconciliation and ultimate, uh, results in reconciliation and ultimately peace. Any empirical evidence? Well, empirical data showing positive or negative effects of international prosecutions on peacemaking is scarce. Notwithstanding the highly welcome criminological turn in international criminal law scholarship, there still is a lack of systematic analysis concerning the effects of international criminal justice, and of course, no easy causal interferences can be drawn. The few studies dealing with this issue on the basis of empirical data suggest that there is virtually no or very little effect of international prosecutions, in particular regarding the facilitation and reconciliation as a precondition to durable peace. Case studies concerning ICC interventions in Libya and Uganda show rather unclear results. Studies on the ICTY demonstrate that the perceptions of international efforts to prosecute and punish within the affected communities as possible indicators for reconciliation and ultimately peace differ significantly from the international narrative according to which trials were fair, sanctions were fairly balanced, and the tribunal did a good job in going for civilian and military personnel at all levels and hierarchy, hierarchies and from each major ethnic and national party involved in the conflict. And in fact, Nino Cassese already in 2004 admitted that, quote, the much hoped for beneficial impact of ICTY trials on persons and groups living in the former Yugoslavia is meager and tardy, end of quote. <clears throat> Thus, it is safe to say that at least on an empirical basis, a positive and direct impact of punishment on the making or restoration of peace cannot be established. We just don't know. The truth probably is, but this is again a speculation, that punishment can assist peace processes if and only if powerful international institutions and states complement it 
with diplomacy and coercive political strategies. It is the international commitment which makes prosecution a powerful tool. But arguably, the presumed even indirect causality between the institutional and penal objectives to the effect that punishment automatically promotes peace is an article of faith that can hardly be based on empirical evidence. With this in mind, let us see how, if at all, peace and punishment are normatively connected within the Rome Statute system. In fact, as we shall see, the ICC, by its objectives, jurisdictional mandate, and institutional design is home to the full range of possible tensions and coexisting realities of criminal justice and peace. Let me substantiate this by briefly highlighting four areas where the notions of peace and punishment may, or as we shall see, may not, be linked. They relate to criminalization, sentencing, and procedure. First of all, the Rome Statute emphasizes that crimes under international law threaten the peace and security of the world and must therefore not go unpunished. This is very much in line with the proposition of the International Law Commission which presented various versions of a draft code of crimes against the peace and security of mankind. And indeed, international criminal law protects the fundamental values of the international community, including international peace and security, against attacks from various directions. This is the reason why genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes affect the international community as a whole. And this is what makes them distinct from ordinary crimes established on the national level. The protection of the, in this case, collective interest of the affected individual or community, in this case the international community, lends the criminalization of the conduct its legitimacy. And this is very basic and general criminal law theory, which, for instance, in Europe, Germany, in particular in Germany, has been coined the Rechtsgutstheorie, so the theory of the protected legal interest. Whether and to what extent additional interests are protected, such as interests of the affected individuals, is another question which goes beyond the scope of my topic. Let us hold peace and punishment are linked because the offenses criminalize attacks on peace as a legal interest of the international community. Secondly, let us leave the criminalization process and turn to sentencing. It is interesting to know that the ICC in recent sentencing decisions made explicit reference to the making of peace. Building on ICTY case law, the court seems willing to consider effects on peacemaking with a view to the determination of the individual sentence. In Almaty, for instance, the trial chamber explains, quote, with regard to retribution, the chamber clarifies that it is not to be understood as fulfilling a desire for revenge, but as an expression of the international community's condemnation of the crimes, which, by way of imposition of a proportionate sentence, also acknowledges the harm to the victims and promotes the restoration of peace and reconciliation. End of quote. 
This argument situates the making of peace as a result of the expressive, expressive condemnation of the conduct within what the chamber calls a retributive concept of punishment. It is noteworthy that the chamber links classical rationales of punishment, retribution, with larger goals of international criminal justice and its institutions, peace. I will come back to that later. Thirdly, let's turn to procedure. It is often argued that the exercise of prosecutorial discretion of whom to prosecute and when may have repercussions on ongoing peace processes and ultimately peacemaking. This would suggest that the prosecutor in exercising her discretion in the selection of cases would inter alia take the presumed effects on peacemaking into account. Before this background, it is interesting to note that studies on prosecutorial decision-making at the ICTY and the present policies applied by the ICC indicate that the effect on peacemaking and, and individual prosecutorial decision may have is not taken into consideration by the offices of the prosecutor. Greenewald, for instance, has shown that the ICTY made its prosecutorial decisions strictly on the basis of the gravity of the crime and did not take account of political goals such as going after crimes allegedly committed by other ethnic groups to balance the record. This finding is confirmed by the ICC OTP policy papers, the Office of the Prosecutor. According to Article 53 of the Rome Statute, the prosecutor, in deciding whether to initiate an investigation, shall consider inter alia whether there are substantial reasons to believe that the investigation would not serve the interests of justice. Would that open the door to take the effects of peacemaking into account? In other words, is the making of peace in the interest of justice? Well, in one of her policy papers, the ICC prosecutor stressed the difference between the concepts of the interests of justice and the interests of peace, and explains that the latter falls within the mandate of institutions other than the office of the prosecutor of the ICC. I quote, the broader matter of international peace and security is not the responsibility of the prosecutor. It falls within the mandate of other institutions, end of quote from this policy paper. Only with regard to the prioritization of cases, the OTP may, again according to its own policy, consider as one of several factors the, I quote, impact of investigations and prosecutions on ongoing criminality and the impact and the ability of the office of the prosecutor to pursue cases involving opposing parties to a conflict in parallel or on a sequential basis." End of, quote. of course, it is another matter whether and to what extent this official policy of the ICC is reflected in the actual practice, but at least the Greenable study and others indicate with regard to the ICTY that it may be followed also in practice. But in any case, this observation may serve our purposes 
to hold that based on the policy and the analysis of the ICTY practice, the selection of cases is based primarily on the gravity of the crime and not on goals such as making of peace. And the fourth and final aspect I want to mention here, the link to peace is perhaps most obvious if it comes to the role of the Security Council within the Rome Statute system. If the Council, as most of you will know very well, determined the existence of any threat to peace, breach of peace, or act of aggression under Article 39 of the Charter, it may refer a situation to the court or defer an ongoing investigation or prosecution for a period of 12 months. I will come back to that link, Security Council, UN Charter, to the punishment system of Rome Statute later in my talk. We can conclude here, I think, that the notion of peace is integrated indeed in the Rome Statute system, in different areas and on different levels, criminalization and sentencing in particular, but also procedure if it comes to the trigger mechanisms. And I will try to disentangle all this in my conclusions. So let me now leave the ICC and the Rome Statute for a minute and turn to general criminal law, what I would call here general criminal law. And that is, that is criminal law, uh, law and theory uh, as it is um, developed for and applied in the domestic context. I do so before the background of the widespread belief that the issue of peace, punishment, justice, justice is a peculiarity of international criminal law. I would suggest that this is not correct. Let me demonstrate this by very briefly pointing to three areas where the notion of peace plays a role indeed in the domestic context. First of all, in most legal systems, we find offenses where, quite similar to the international level, peace is protected through criminal law. And I'm not referring here to those offenses which were created in many jurisdictions as the result of domestic implementation of the Rome Statute. Rather, I refer to classical, if you want so, offenses which protect public peace or internal peace on a domestic level. Typically, they are much older than the offenses against international peace and belong to the traditional set of criminal offenses in most jurisdictions. Secondly, and admittedly depending on whether one accepts a consequentialist approach to punishment, peacemaking can well be part of a theoretical justification, even in the context of general criminal law, of the criminal sanction. As it is the case inter alia under a theory of positive general prevention or affirmative prevention which claims, as it's called in German, a Befriedungseffekt, so the peacemaking effect of punishment. And thirdly and most fundamentally, the making of peace can be, on a very basic level, referred to as a justifying aim of a system of criminal justice as such. To settle social conflicts and to maintain social peace is, to many, a key to justify the very existence of the criminal justice system as an institution, still talking about the domestic level. As, for instance, Hans-Heinrich Jeschek explains 
it is the aim of any criminal justice system to maintain social or public peace as a precondition for any individual to exercise his or her fundamental rights. I will not go in further detail here, but hope to have made a plausible argument that the notion of peace plays a role indeed in general criminal law and is as such not a unique feature of international criminal law. At this point of our inquiry, it may be helpful, however, to distinguish between different, different concepts of peace. Obviously, peace does not mean the same in all the contexts I mentioned. With this quest for distinction, I do not refer to a broader or narrower meaning of peace as it can be inter alia observed in the interpretation and application of Article 39 uh, by the Security Council. So the turn from peace as the absence of the use of force to a more comprehensive positive notion will be familiar to many of you. My quest for distinction does also not refer to the necessary distinction between social peace, public peace and international peace. Rather, for the purpose of my paper, <coughs> I suggest that from a functional perspective it is crucial to distinguish peace as a normative and abstract concept from peace as a social-political phenomenon attached to a very specific and concrete situation. While peace, the notion of peace, as it is used in general criminal law theory, refers to the former understanding, peace within the meaning of Article 39, for instance, of the UN Charter would refer to the latter. The understanding of peace as a socio-political phenomenon which makes distortions of peace the starting point of institutional reactions is, I believe, much closer to what we would situate in a police or law enforcement setting rather than a criminal justice setting in our domestic contexts. We shall see how these dis distinctions translate into international criminal law. Let me now turn to the second, shorter part of my paper and leave the issue of peacemaking for a moment. International criminal law, that is a very general observation, in many respects is modeled upon domestic criminal law. For instance, in the area of attribution and other general principles of criminal law, domestic analogies are, for obvious reasons, familiar. This, one may argue, can also apply to punishment and its justifying aims. And indeed, international courts could rely on centuries of criminal law theory and practice. A theory and practice which makes a basic distinction between deontological and consequentialist approaches to punishment. A theory and practice which sees with notable nuances and variations in detail the following aims or purposes exclusively or in combination as relevant. Retribution, which justifies punishment as a just consequence of the criminal conduct and is based on the notion that those who acted wrongfully deserve a proportionate punishment. Punire quia peccatum est, we punish because a crime was committed and various theories of prevention. Punire nec peccato, we punish to prevent the future commission of crime with, again, 
different subsets of general prevention, negatively by deterrence or positively by counterfactual reaffirmation of the norms and values protected by the law, and of special prevention, including rehabilitation and incapacitation. Or theories of expressivism, to a large extent overlapping with European concepts of positive general prevention, emphasizing the communicative function of punishment with a central claim that the criminal law projects and reinforces norms so that the general public internalizes them and voluntarily complies. So all these theories offer answers to the question, why punish? But could they carry over to international criminal law? Well, if you analyze the case law of the ICC, the court, very much similar than before the ICTY, uniformly and without reservation refers to imported domestic rationals. I cannot explain the case law in all detail here, but retribution and deterrence play a key role. However, the courts, the ICTY as well as the ICC, sought, as we have seen in the quote from Almadi, to alleviate a certain conceptual discomfort arising from a direct transportation, a transposition of national rationals by linking them to the socio-political objectives of international criminal law. And in this context, it is interesting to note that by applying this technique of reasoning, the penal philosophy of the tribunal seems to rest on two pillars, the domestic law doctrine and the goals set for the international criminal justice institutions, such as peacemaking. It is, however, not only the conflation of punitive rationals and institutional goals which is somewhat troubling. There are also doubts whether the traditional punishment rationals can be easily transferred to the specific setting of punishing crimes under international law before an international court. Let me, as examples, point to three challenges for a domestic analogy which suggest to at least reconsider what seems consensus in a domestic context. They relate to the perpetrator, the conduct, and the forum. First, the perpetrators. The perpetrators of crimes under international law arguably are significantly less responsive to the threat of the criminal sanction if compared to ordinary perpetrators. International crimes are typically committed in places where significant segments of the population believe that the conduct is morally permissible or even desirable. As we learn from criminologists, perpetrators of mass atrocities often are law-abiding or norm-abiding citizens. And indeed, often, think of Nazi Germany, the actual behavior is not deviant at all, at least not if measured against the specific social and normative environment of the perpetrator. In other cases, we can observe that perpetrators of crimes under international law act out of strong political and ideological motives and are, what is called in the domestic context, so-called Überzeugungstäter, so perpetrators of conviction. 
Before this background, theories of rehabilitation and of positive or affirmative prevention lose much of their force. The former perpetrator, who acts in full compliance with his micro-level normative framework, needs not be rehabilitated. The latter perpetrator, who acts out of a deep conviction, cannot be rehabilitated. Furthermore, if there are no stable rules, you hardly reinforce them and affirm their validity as theories of positive general prevention claim. It would be a re-establishment or establishment in the first place rather than a stabilization of an existing normative framework. A second challenge results from the specific nature of the criminal conduct, in particular its specific seriousness. This may, it has been argued, be problematic from a retributive point of view. In fact, there is a point in arguing that in cases of crimes under international law, the conduct is of such a seriousness that it is merely impossible to outweigh it through punishment. As Hannah Arendt famously explained, the sheer scale of Nazi crimes, quote, render all, renders all punishments inadequate and absurd, end of quote. And thirdly, whereas the first two differences, perpetrator and conduct, are not unique to the international level because they are equally applicable and challenging to the punishment of war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide in a domestic court, the forum and the enforcement that challenge the traditional punishment theories are. They are unique. Here in particular, the high, highly selective enforcement is a challenge. Generally speaking, the sanctions preventive function operates against the background of continuous enforcement. The continued risk of apprehension and punishment is the key feature in the system's deterrent effect. Deterrence, as we know, depends not so much on the severity of the sanction, but on the probability to, of, uh, to be prosecuted and sanctioned at all. Then, of course, it is a problem if the chance to be prosecuted and punished for a war crime or crime against humanity still is much smaller than it is for shoplifting or fraud. With pointing to these three challenges very superficially, um, I confine my brief discussion uh, to the class of the classical purposes and the issue of a transferability to the international level. I leave out possible additional specific causes and aims um, justifying uh, punishment in the international context, such as establishing the truth, acknowledging the victim status, and so on. Personally, and just as a footnote in this chapter, um, I share the view of those who see the key justification for punishment in international criminal law in a retributivist concept. So notwithstanding Hannah Arendt's claim. I would argue that the retributive rationale for punishment is important for two main reasons. Firstly, in my view, only a punishment based on retributive grounds <clears throat> is morally justified and legitimate. It is thus especially important to adhere to retribution in a system which suffers from a legitimacy deficit such as the international criminal law system. 
The second reason is an instrumental one. Strengthening the retributive purpose will help to re-establish the role retribution plays in determining the specific penalty, the sentencing. This re-establishment is critical in view of the potential erosion, I believe, of the proportionality principle in international criminal law. So let me sum up my broad brush tour d'horizon on peace, punishment and the ICC with four tentative conclusions. First, crimes under international law protect international peace. This observation helps to legitimize the criminalization of the underlying conduct. But it is not sufficient to explain and justify punishment as a reaction to crime. Furthermore, as we have seen, employing criminal law to protect peace is familiar to domestic criminal law. Also beyond that, the notion of peace is as such neither alien to general criminal law theory nor to domestic criminal law. Secondly, it is crucial not to conflate peacemaking as a possible aim justifying criminal justice as an institution and peacemaking as a possible rational for the determination of a sentence. It is equally important to further distinguish peacemaking as a basis for triggering the exercise of institutional powers. A certain penal aim, such as the promotion of peace, may have different applicability depending on which of the, as the named aspects we refer to. At the same time, it is crucial to be aware of different notions of peace which are applicable on the different levels. If the courts have asserted that punishment per se promotes peace building, this appears to be a dubious assertion and a potential conflation of the roles of these objectives. Is peacemaking relevant when it comes to justifying the system of international criminal justice? I would say yes. And this is, as I try to have shown, not special to the international legal order. Should the making of the presumed effects on peace be taken into account when determining the sentence? I believe no. Thirdly, my third concluding observation, punishment rationals and theories should not be transferred easily from the general domestic law to the international level. I have tried to show that by pointing to specific challenges which confront us if it comes to the punishment of perpetrators of crimes under international law by international courts. And this brings me to my fourth and final observation. The ICC is not an ordinary criminal court. Of course, the ICC's most explicit function is to determine culpable wrongdoing and to punish individuals accordingly. But as, but, but as, but as I have argued elsewhere, it is intended to perform additional tasks which go beyond the duties and resp responsibilities, perhaps also the cap capacities, of an ordinary criminal court. It would be short-sighted to consider the ICC as an institution to adjudicate guilt only. Rather, the ICC, much like the chimera, the monstrous hybrid creature described by Homer in the Iliad, has at least three different heads. The indisputable role as a criminal court proper
is transcended by two additional functions. The role as a watchdog court, here the court is a catalyst for compliance, addressing states within the complementarity regime, and more importantly, for the purposes of our topic, the role as a world security or world peace court. The ICC is not concerned about punishment only, but includes the production of compliance and peace. And here I mean peace in a very concrete sense, which differs from the notion of peace applicable in the general criminal justice context. Obviously, the function of a world security or world peace court transcends the classic goals of criminal justice. Ultimately, the general tensions between peace and justice are transformed into intra-institutional frictions. And I believe that it is important to distinguish the different functions of the ICC also if we try to measure whether it is a success. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Professor Jesperger. We have about half an hour for questions, and um, the questions won't be recorded. The talk was. Um,